Good morning, again. It is really good to be together, and uh, I've been thinking this week about the church. And, uh, you know, when I moved to Fort Wayne, I was told that this is the city of churches. It's a city that's full of what my kids call castles. <laughs> Most people call them cathedrals. They're these, these beautiful church buildings all over. And, and these are some pictures of churches in this city. Of course, we know that in Scripture, not saying it's wrong to use that word that way, but in Scripture, the church doesn't mean the building, right? In Scripture, the church is, is the people. And so we might, we might think of this as church pictures, all these wonderful pictures that, that Diane has taken for us and we have placed out there, pictures of family, pictures of people that we hold dear. And together, it's a picture of a group of people who are working together. Maybe when you think of church pictures, you could think back in your memory to to little vignettes, little moments that the church has made a difference in your life. Pictures of God's church. I, I think back, I was just sitting in this, this chair a moment ago and, and thinking about different times that the church has contributed to me from Miss Edna Sharp teaching me Jesus loves me when I was little and in a little church building in, in Phoenix to... Um, to, to Sister Sue taking me in when I moved to Kentucky and didn't know anybody and anywhere in the whole state. And took, she took me in and gave me a place to stay. I think of times like when I was in Lithuania singing hymns that I knew the melody to, but I was singing in Lithuanian. But here I was with all these different people who... Loved the same things that I loved, the same one that I loved, and were singing about it. And so the words, well, I knew what I was saying enough. There are so many ways that the church contributes to us, but most of all, if you are in Christ, where did your conversion come from? Who taught you? Christ. The Lord has given this job of bringing the gospel and his saving work to each one of us. I want to talk this morning about church pictures. More specifically, I want to talk about seven Bible word pictures of the church. Seven word pictures Seven metaphors that the Holy Spirit uses to help us understand what the church is all about. As we look at these pictures, we'll see God's people evangelizing. We see them not only spreading the gospel with the world, but building each other up. We see them 
worshiping the Lord and we see them caring for needy saints. This is the work that God has given his local church. The church is all of the saved people in the whole world and beyond the world. But then God has told us to organize into these small working groups, and he calls those churches also. So it's interesting, the same word for all of the called-out assembly is the same word that's used for these individual gatherings. And and as we think about these word pictures, it, it doesn't really count. It's not one of my seven, but the word church is actually a picture. The word, the Greek word is ekklesia, is a picture of an assembly. The Greeks would have assemblies to, to vote or decide things, and they would say, okay, we're going to call an ecclesia, and we're going to talk as a whole group about what the city needs to do. We're going to call an assembly. In the Old Testament, whenever it's translated into Greek, this is the word used sometimes for whenever the people of God would come together, the assembly. And we are... The gathering, the group, the collection of people that are called out, the church. And so how does God describe the church? And what I hope we come to understand as we look at this is that the church is uniquely important out of all of God's creations. In Ephesians 3... Ephesians is a wonderful book that helps us see the big, big picture. It's like we're zooming way, way out to see God's eternal plan. And Paul says in verse 9 that the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What is the plan that, that nobody has been able to know? That through the church, God would show the manifold wisdom of God. God is going to show his, the word manifold literally means multifaceted, like a gem. It's multifaceted. Imagine you're standing in a room full of pictures, looking at a gem, and seeing all of these pictures reflected. That's what we want to look at today, because the manifold wisdom of God, the many-faceted wisdom of God, is known through the church. And who does he want to make it known to? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, we learn that the, the rulers and powers of spiritual darkness... The the demons, the fallen angels, are in the heavenly places. It's like a realm that Paul is using this word to describe. So there's the angels and there's the the demons and all the powers beyond this world. and, And those in this world all can see God's wisdom, God's greatness, God's goodness through the church. What is that saying? He says this is according to his eternal purpose that the church is going to show what he means to do in the world. Through the church. I hope that we can see today that the church matters. That we're part of something far bigger than we might realize 
God's eternal plan didn't end with Christ's death and resurrection. What transpires in this group isn't lost on the forces of good and evil beyond this world. This is where the battle takes place between evil and good. This is where the the rubber meets the road. The, The forces of darkness aren't out just trying to to do something far away from what's happening here. They're trying to affect the fight that we're in. And God is showing how he can take flawed, broken people and call them together and change them through love and grace and wisdom and let them work with him. Why does God want us to be his partners? He doesn't need us. He's showing his wisdom as he partners with us. And so here's the key idea if you're writing on on your note sheet. There's no organization on earth like the local church. Nothing can match its power for good. How do I know that? Because God designed it to do the most important work there is. To accomplish his eternal purpose. To save any that would come to him. To make a place someday for all those who would love him to be together in in joy and in the bliss of his presence. Seven Bible word pictures. Think that as we... As we go through these pictures, we're going to see all kinds of different facets of what God wants to accomplish in the church. We'll see a mountaintop, and then we'll cross a field, and we'll go through some great buildings. We'll notice a Passover feast, and all are going to show the same thing, and all are going to show something slightly different. But I hope you notice how smart and wise and good our God is and how precious his masterpiece, the church, is. And that we don't look at it from a distance because here's the big shocking thing. The church is you. The church is me. The church is not any one of us, but it's us together working in the way that God told us to. God makes something amazing out of us. And the audience is no less than every powerful being in the spiritual realm, every person in the world, and God himself who intends to show forth in us, of all things, his goodness. Let's start on the mountain. Turn with me to Micah chapter 4. This is one of those minor prophets that you might have to go to your table of contents to find if you don't have the little tabs or haven't done the work with... Like, like Bev does with our kids, to, to know the, the books really well. But once you find it, turn to chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, where we read a prophecy 700 years before the church comes about the church. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest 
of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. You know, the King James has a way of words that just, there's an eloquence to the way that it translates things. I love how it says that this mountain will be exalted above the hills, lifted up above the hills. We'll come back to the text in a minute. I want you to get this picture. Like, there's all these foothills, right? Whenever I would go to um, every birthday back when we lived in Phoenix, we would go up to Flagstaff, about two and a half hours north of Phoenix. And you're sort of on an ascent the whole time, kind of like those Psalms of Ascent we were talking about earlier. And you're going up, and then there's this point where you come around a corner and you see lifted up above everything. Usually there's just sort of sky in between, and then you see the San Francisco peak. And that's where we would go skiing on my birthday every year. And it's, it's like all this, all this elevation you've climbed was nothing compared to this mountain that's popping up above everything. I mean, I've heard you can see it from California, the San Francisco peak. It's like over 12,000 feet high. And that's this picture that we get. Well, what was the last time you were on a mountaintop? There aren't any mountains in Indiana, I know. <laughs> but but you, you go and you see the majesty of this mountain. And you, you climb. And, and you see this perspective. Monty was just, I think, in the Smokies. The picture that what God's trying to tell us here is... That the church, this thing that he's talking about, is grand. It's magnificent. And if we keep reading, we find that everybody in the world, people of every nation, have become mountain climbers because there's something so great about this mountain. He says it's above the hills and people shall flow to it. Verse 2, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that we may, he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he goes on to talk about how God is going to be the judge and he's going to take our swords and we'll beat them into plowshares and, and we'll have peace. And all the people who used to walk in the name of his God, its God, the different nations, we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever. Why do I say that this is the church? Well, flip with me now to Hebrews chapter 12. What is that mountain? Where is the place that people of all nations go To hear the word of the Lord. He begins with a different kind of mountain here. He begins by talking about Mount Sinai. And he says in verse 18, You have not come to what may 
may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom. This isn't a mountain you can touch. And this isn't a mountain that you come to like Sinai in Exodus 19 before the giving of the Ten Commandments whenever there was all kinds of strange and scary weather, right? Earthquakes and, and fire from heaven and there's this cloud shrouding the mountain. And God wanted them to know, I have come down to this mountain and anybody who steps on it is going to die. So holy is the place where I am. You haven't come to this shaking, quaking mountain. You've actually come to something scarier and grander. He says in verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly... That word is ecclesia. Everywhere else, just about, it's translated the church, the assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to the gathering of people who have their names in the book of life written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that seeks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to the assembly of Jesus, the firstborn, the one who is firstborn from the dead, risen up, so that we too someday will raise. You know, it's funny, we talked about in that psalm, I look to the hills, I look to the mountain, from whence my help, where will my help come? But we got to remember, we are the mountain. We are the mountain. We are God's church. We are the ones that the nations stream to. The church is the place where we go to be taught of God. Well, why does everyone come there? Of course, because that's where God is. Why did people climb Mount Zion? Because that's where the temple of the Lord was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and verses 16 and 17, we read about the temple. It says in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers, talking about Paul and Apollos, you, Corinthian church, are God's field, God's building. We'll come back to the field in a minute. You are God's building. He goes on, what kind of building is it? Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you collectively, it's a plural, you are that temple. Later on in chapter 6, he'll talk about our bodies being a temple. But here he's saying the church is God's temple, God's building. And he calls himself, in the verses in between, a master builder, a master builder, and talks about how he wants to build something. You know, I want to build something. I want to build something in in this church. I want to build something here. Do you want to build something? 
Paul says we get the privilege of building with who? He says we are God's fellow workers. We're building with God. A place for himself to dwell in. What an amazing idea. You know, most of my favorite songs are about the presence of God. This is holy ground, for the Lord is present. We sing about how, uh, how God is with us, how Jesus is here. something extraordinary about that thought. I think about the pillar of fire and of smoke identifying the presence of God with his people continually. We can't see that pillar of fire, but it is here. God is here. And if he's here in the midst of his people, the people have to be awake. See, whenever the pillar of fire and smoke was among them, they had to change everything for God's presence to be with them. They needed a law. They needed to follow certain things. They needed a sacrifice. They needed to think differently because they would be a holy people, a set-apart people, if God was with them. This is where God lives, and that's why people climb the, the mountain. Paul said, here is the mystery, Christ in you. God is so wise, and so he makes us not only his temple, but as he said, you are God's field, God's building. What does it mean, you are God's field? Well, he just talked about in the verses right before that, he said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God makes it all grow. And where is he planting? In you, in the church. Where is he watering? In you, in the church. In other words... The church is where Christians grow. You are God's field where these thi- this, this crop is growing and abundance and fruit are coming forth. You know, it's easy to stop when we're reading Matthew 28 and we read that, that we should go into the all, all the world and preach the gospel and just end it there. Or maybe go a little further, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then end it there. But it continues after that, right? Teaching them whatever I have commanded you. Go into all the world and make disciples. Disciples are learners. That's what we do. That's what we're here for to keep learning together and building up one another. Let's go back to that idea in Micah 4. What makes the church such a special place to learn about God? You know, you can go all over the place and and study the Bible. You can go to a university and and take a, a lectureship class on the book of Job or the book of Revelation, just like what we're doing. What is the difference? 
Well, if we're doing it right, here's the key. The teacher, when we study here, when I preach here, when we talk to one another to build each other up, speaking as the oracles of God here, the teacher isn't Ralph and it isn't me. It's not Miss Bev teaching my kids. The teacher is who? Do you remember back in Matthew 4? And they shall all go and learn of God, and God will teach them his ways. You see the difference? If I can step back and say, here's what's really happening here, we're going to look together at this and try to learn what God wants us to take from this word and let that live in us. That's what the church is about. It's about being students of God, followers of God. Not just learning abstract facts, but being trained by him to live like Jesus. It's interesting. In a field, um, it's not a dynamic transformation that happens like whenever when, you know you're baptized in a baptism, you, you you're above the water and and you're in your sins and you go under the water and your sins are washed away. But growing isn't like that. You're watching me, I'm watching you, and and you can't watch me grow like that, like watching a tomato plant or watching a field and the cord coming up. You can do a time-lapse photography and see the growth, but if you're sitting there watching it, really boring. <laughs> because it's slow. Growth is slow. And farming is hard work. And it takes patience to farm. And so as we work this field, you are God's field, As we work in one another, it's going to take time. As we look at our own growth, we have to look back sometimes five, ten years to think about, you know, I really have come a long way. I've got so far to go, but God has done some things in me. God has done some things in my wife. God has done some things in the people that I see here. I see growth all over this church happening All the time. It's amazing. The things that, the comments I hear, or the conversations I have, the things that people are studying, the things that people are doing in their service that I never would have thought that they would be involved in. And so we keep growing as God's field. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we find two other pictures. Just like in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, there's two pictures of the church. In 1 Timothy 3, 15, we read two different pictures here. He says, after giving the, the description of the qualifications for uh, the elders, the overseers, and the qualifications for the deacons, he says, I'm writing this to you, verse 14, that you may know, verse 15, how one ought to behave in the household of God. We'll come back to that. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's focus in on that for a minute. The church is the pillar of the truth. 
Paul writes so that we'll know how to live in the church. Why did he write? Because we need to understand it matters what we do in the church. We're the ones who are meant to hold up the truth. Think of those great pillars in the, in the ancient world that you couldn't even get your arms around. And what was their job? I mean, this is how many hundreds, thousands of years old is, are, are these buildings that are still standing. And they were built to hold up these structures and to support them. Because if the pillar's not strong, the whole structure crumbles. And I'll tell you, there has never been a more important pillar, a more important structure to uphold than what God gives us. We are holding up the truth. That's our purpose. This is a picture of purpose. And so we have to have stability and strength and hold it up. I could say outreach is job one, and that's not just because that's the team that, that I, I'm the team leader of in our, in our five visions. But really, it would be more accurate, I think, to if you're, you're thinking of this, to say upreach is job one, because we're holding it up so that everybody, those in the church and those outside the church, can see the truth like, like a light. We're, we're holding it up to exalt the Lord and lift people up to the Lord, lifting their eyes to his holiness and his grace. And, and the lesson of this picture is that the church is a group that is unyielding in its stand for the truth. Are we focusing on this spiritual mission? This is not just a time to, to fill a time slot, of course. It's also not just a time to, to come together and be with some of our favorite people. Everything we do as a church, is to hold up the truth. And then he says, this is in verse, that same verse, that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This isn't the house like the building. We just talked about God's house, the temple. This is the household, the family of God. It's a place of security and belonging. Throughout the New Testament, the church uses these family terms, brother and sister, family, together. I think of Paul's goodbye in Romans 16. If you're reading through Romans, there's so much doctrine, so much application. Then you get to chapter 16, and just a bunch of names. And it's easy to skip over it. But what you see there is a person who loves his family. I haven't seen most of these people forever. It's been a long time. But he says, hey, say hi to Rufus. Say hi to his mom also, because she's like my mom. That's what he says. Say hi to Rufus and his mom, because she's my mom too. You know, Jesus made this promise that those who give up fathers and, and sons and brothers and sisters and, and houses will receive it back a hundredfold in the kingdom and eternal life. Have you ever found that to be true? That you have hundreds of grandmas and little brothers and hundreds of, of sisters and, and of, of father figures. What a blessing 
to have a family. Did you know that there is a totally different word, a different commandment for the kind of love that we're supposed to have for each other than the love we have for everybody else? Everybody, everyone, in the, even your enemies, we show agape love to. That's the love that is committed to the good of others, even if it costs us. But with the family, we're also commanded to have brotherly affection. Philadelphia, right? And that's this family bond where you have this kinship connection, this, this bond of closeness. And tenderness, where we see not an enemy, but someone who is dear. And we treat one another accordingly. And, you know, we've had some hard times here recently where we had to say goodbye to some of the people that we hold dear. As, as a lot of, several of our favorite families have, have moved away. We've had times here recently where we've said Goodbye, at least for now, to those who've gone on home. But those bonds don't stop. They don't even waver. Those bonds remain. And we sing those songs like, if we never meet again this side of heaven, feel like they're just meant to tear your heart out and throw it on the ground, you know. Uh, God be with you till we meet again. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. And the women cry, and if you're looking around, some of the big tough men start getting welling up too because of the love we have for each other. And it's not in those moments that we need that love. We need to remember that brotherly affection most. It's whenever, as families do, let's just be real, I get on your nerves. <laughs> it's whenever you need a little patience with me. Looking like that's hitting too close to home here, Ellen. <laughs> Ellen started cracking up immediately. Yeah, you know, we, we all have moments, Right? I, where we, we push too hard for something or we, we let somebody down, we don't say something the right way, and we have to remember the bonds of agape and brotherly affection and be not just like a family in the world. Families in the world take care of each other, and we take care of each other. That's benevolence to the saints. But we're more than that. We are God's family, and so we make a big space for people, for each one of us to belong and to be lifted up in patience and in love. And then in 1 Peter 5, we find this picture of a flock. In 1 Peter 5, we read about shepherds. You know, I mentioned we're going to be appointing another shepherd today, another elder. He says in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elder, elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a picture of spiritual leadership. This is a picture of spiritual protection. Jesus, and even in the Old Testament, God loves this 
metaphor of shepherding seems to be the favorite metaphor of leadership. And Jesus says the, the sheep know the shepherd's voice and the shepherd knows the sheep. And there's this commitment from the shepherd to do whatever it takes to protect and care for the sheep. And there's this trust and obedience from the sheep to follow the shepherd. As they look to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. There was a time when I viewed elders, I think, more as, as CEOs. You know, as, as just sort of like this is the council of, of leadership. And, that you know, the picture of an overseer has to do with decision-making and management. But this picture that we see over and over again of shepherding is about more than that. It's... It's mentoring and teaching and guiding and straight-talking or gentle-talking or disciplining, lots of listening, sharing with the flock, living and learning and being amongst the flock, teaching, feeding. It's a spiritual leadership. What a gift that God has not only said, I will be your shepherd, remember the 23rd Psalm, but he said, I'm going to give you shepherds. Someone, what would most people give to have someone invested with all their life in them, in their spiritual well-being? I mean, what, what an incredible gift. And, and he lays out these qualifications, not because shepherds are, are perfect, but he says, these are the people of character I want to be your leaders. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see the picture of bread. And it's a picture of a particular kind of bread. It's a picture of purity, really. It's a picture of the Passover. And he talks about, he's, in the context, he's talking about this man who's a member of the church there in Corinth who is living in the wrong way, an unrepentant sexual sin. And he says, listen, you need to cast out the leaven. Back in those days, if you wanted to make leavened bread, you didn't get out a rapid rise yeast packet or, or something like that. You would take a lump of bread and you would let it ferment. And then you'd put a lump, the lump into the bread. And just that little lump, even if the rest wasn't leavened, that little lump of leavened bread made the whole lump leavened, made it all raise, and therefore made it unacceptable for the Passover. They would have this feast once a year where you had to get rid of all leaven from the house. And so Paul is using this metaphor to say, you need to clean the church's house and get rid of all the leaven or else we'll be defiled because our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has already been sacrificed and we need to celebrate the feast. Our whole life is celebrating the feast. They did it once a year. We're always celebrating the feast, but that means we need to always be without leaven in the church. And so it's, it's, a, it's about culture. I, I once heard this um, definition in a, in a business book of culture. They said, culture is what you decide to tolerate. It's the line you draw between what is tolerated and what is not. Maybe there's more to culture than that, but I think that's a helpful definition. And in the church, when we're doing it right, the line is drawn by God. 
And we say, hey, we are a counterculture to everything that's happening in the world. And so we don't, we don't live the way the world does. There is a line that is drawn by God that we uphold. Now, do we fall? Of course. But that doesn't make it okay. We fall and we repent. We fall and we correct. But if we decide, no, I'm going to stay in this sinful way, then, then that's a problem. That is leaven in the lump. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, he's saying that we need to cast out the leaven to protect not only the soul of this person, but protect God's church. So he talks about church discipline. The discipline of, at a certain point, there comes a time to not associate with that person. And he says, hand him over to Satan. In other words, identify this person as someone who is no longer walking in the right way. And the goal is to save his soul, he says, and to protect the church. That the church doesn't all become this other thing. Because if we move that line and we say, okay, it's, we're just going to live just like the rest of the world lives. We're going to believe what the rest of the world believes. We are no longer the church. And there is no line. The line gives us a way to take someone from the world and bring them in to God's church. So purity matters in the church we have to stand strong much as i love yeasty rolls we can't be we can't be leavened jesus says at a certain point we will what he says lose our candlestick and so the people there discipline this brother and it seems in second corinthians that he repented ever flown over Chicago or Indianapolis at night? There's, the best example is flying over Phoenix, if you've ever done that at night, because you start flying over Phoenix, and the lights that you see scattered underneath you start like 45 minutes before you get to the airport, and you're just, the city is so huge, and you just see all of these lights everywhere. We've been studying in Revelation, and we started with this picture. I didn't include it up here, but this picture in Revelation 1 of Jesus standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And he said, here's the mystery. I'm going to explain it. The lampstands are the churches. There were seven churches he was talking about there, but they represent really all of the churches. Imagine a lampstand here and a lampstand in Marion and some in India and some up in Michigan and some in Phoenix and some in Lithuania. And they're all over the place. These churches of God's people in this dark night that Jesus can look down and see. But really, he is in their midst. He is close to each one of us. And we're burning this flame of his presence, burning, living representations of God. You see, he's given us these pictures so that we know. We don't have letters just to us like these Revelation people. We have to look at the ones he's already written. And we look at these pictures in the church and we see the angels are watching. This is who we need to be. 
The eternal plan of God continues. And we are taking the torch and working. We need to not let it flicker. Let the presence of God light the fire. Let the whole world see it. I I do believe that the light is shining forth from this place. And as Jesus stands in the midst of his churches, the bride and the spirit, the bride is the church, and the spirit say, come, come to me. Because the eternal plan of God, realized in Christ Jesus, was that we would have boldness and access with confidence to live forever in the presence of God through him. Through Jesus, we can know him and we can live with him forever. We invite you to come to him now while we stand and sing.